In Memoriam, A.H.H. by Alfred Tennyson, Canto 46-50 through 50. In this canto, Tennyson reflects that it is a mercy all the joys and sorrows of our life on earth dim from memory as the years pass. To look back and be confronted at once with all the thorns and flowers would be unbearable. But in the next life, he says, no shade will obscure the past. All that had ever been will bloom before us as one vast, bright, and eternal landscape. Here are those ideas captured in the first two stanzas of Canto 46. We ranging down this lower track, the path we came by, thorn and flower, is shadowed by the growing hour, lest life should fail in looking back. So be it. There no shade can last, in that deep dawn behind the tomb, but clear from marge to marge shall bloom the eternal landscape of the past. In the next stanzas, he says that there, all the peaceful and productive days Hallam spent in self-improvement will be revealed in a single, sprawling landscape of his life. In life, the love between him and Hallam was bounded by time, stretching only across four short years. But in life after death, Hallam's love is a star, radiating its warmth across all of eternity. Here are those stanzas. A lifelong tract of time revealed, the fruitful hours of still increase, days ordered in a wealthy peace, and those five years its richest field. O oh, love, thy province were not large, a bounded field, nor stretching far. Look also, love, a brooding star, a rosy warmth from marge to marge. It seems to me almost like this canto is better felt than comprehended. Tennyson's time with his friend was short, and the memories have inevitably faded. But though love and life is bounded by these mortal limitations, there is something eternal, some abstract essence of love itself that he will carry with him forever. He gives that immortal love expression in a vision that is palpable and vivid. Instead of a path of thorns and flowers that falls into shadow as it winds ahead, this abstracted love is a vast, unbounded landscape blooming in the rosy warmth of a deep dawn. Can you feel it? It may be a vision of heaven, but it seems to me like a projection of something that lives within his own soul. Here again is the whole of Canto 46. We ranging down this lower track, the path we came by, thorn and flower, is shadowed by the growing hour, lest life should fail in looking back. So be it. There no shade can last in that deep dawn behind the tomb, but clear from marge to marge shall bloom the eternal landscape of the past. A lifelong tract of time revealed, the fruitful hours of still increase, days ordered in a wealthy peace, and those five years its richest field. O oh love, thy province were not large, a bounded field, nor stretching far. Look also, love, a brooding star, a rosy warmth from marge to marge. In Canto 47, 
Tennyson roundly rejects the notion that after death, each of us loses our separate identity to become merged in the general soul. He scorns this doctrine as vague and distasteful, and avows that every soul will be eternally distinct from all others. It is clear why this matters so much to him, when he insists, with charming, defiant directness, I shall know him when we meet. Here are the first two stanzas. That each who seems a separate whole should move his rounds, and fusing all the skirts of self again should fall, remerging in the general soul, is faith as vague as all unsweet. Eternal form shall still divide the eternal soul from all beside, and I shall know him when we meet. Far from dissolving into the divine will, he expects to spend eternity at an endless feast, enjoying the company of his friend. And if for any reason that is a dream that cannot be realized, he will, at the very least, meet with Hallam one last time, clasp him in friendship, and say farewell before their spirits fade away. Here are the last two stanzas. And we shall sit at endless feast, enjoying each the other's good. What vaster dream can hit the mood of love on earth? He seeks at least upon the last and sharpest height before the spirits fade away some landing place to clasp and say, Farewell, we lose ourselves in light. Sometimes the plainest expressions of love are the most powerful of all. I adore the simple defiance of Tennyson's insistence, I shall know him when we meet. And I love that the vastest dream of which he can conceive is to spend eternity at a feast with his friend. Here's that whole canto together. That each, who seems a separate whole, should move his rounds, and fusing all the skirts of self again, should fall, remerging in the general soul, is faith as vague as all unsweet. Eternal form shall still divide the eternal soul from all beside, and I shall know him when we meet. And we shall sit at endless feast, enjoying each the other's good. What vaster dream can hit the mood of love on earth? He seeks at least upon the last and sharpest height before the spirits fade away, some landing place to clasp and say, Farewell, we lose ourselves in light. In Canto 48, I have found another favorite. At the last two lines, I put my head back, closed my eyes, and cried. Tennyson is again almost apologetic for venturing into sacred territory as he endeavors to express his grief. He fears someone will misunderstand him as trying to settle religious difficulties and close grave doubts. His songs of sorrow, he says, are meant as no polemic or proof, but only as a private expression of his feelings. And where doubt has crept in, he has tried always to subjugate it to love. Here are those ideas expressed in the first two stanzas. If these brief lays of sorrow born were taken to be such as closed grave doubts and answers here proposed, then these were such as men might scorn. Her care is not to part 
and prove. She takes, when harsher moods remit, what slender shade of doubt may flit, and makes it vassal unto love. Rather than trying in vain to fathom the depths and give them some finality of expression, he has instead simply sported with words, letting loose a simple song to capture his mood as it passes. I won't tell you about the final phrase that took my breath away. I will let Tennyson speak for himself. Here are the final stanzas of Canto 48. And hence, indeed, she sports with words, but better serves a wholesome law, and holds its sin and shame to draw the deepest measure from the chords. Nor dare she trust a larger lay, but rather loosens from the lip short swallow flights of song that dip their wings in tears and skim away. I can't even explain what is so moving to me about that image of his songs like swallows dipping their wings in tears and skimming away. But it is. Canto 49 This canto is another one where the last two lines wrenched my heart. Some of the specific phrases elude me, but the overall sentiment is this. Art, nature, philosophy, theology, all can do no more than brush the surface of his grief. They are like shafts of light, or rippling eddies, or breaths of wind that play on the pool's surface. But beneath these shallow fancies, down in the depths, is his real sorrow. Again, I'll save the specific formulation for Tennyson to express it only as he can. Here is Canto 49. From art, from nature, from the schools, let random influences glance, like light in many a shivered lance that breaks about the dappled pools. The lightest wave of thought shall lisp, the fancy's tenderest eddy wreathe, the slightest air of song shall breathe to make the sullen surface crisp. And look thy look, and go thy way, but blame not thou the winds that make the seeming wanton ripple break, the tender penciled shadow play. Beneath all fancied hopes and fears, ay me, the sorrow deepens down, whose muffled motions blindly drown the bases of my life in tears. In Canto 50, Tennyson seems overcome again by a despondency that makes him think of death. The first stanza is a powerful image of a deathbed decay as the heart sickens, the blood creeps, and the wheels of being slow to a stop. The second is fraught with the agonies and doubts of a painful death. The third imagines the bitter feelings that might attend to death when his faith has run dry and mortal life seems fleeting and petty. And his refrain is the same through it all. A plea to his friend, be near me when that time arrives. Here are those first three stanzas. Be near me when my light is low, when the blood creeps and the nerves prick and tingle and the heart is sick and all the wheels of being slow. Be near me when the sensuous frame is racked with pangs that conquer trust, and time a maniac scattering dust, and life a fury slinging flame. Be near me when my faith is dry, 
and mend the flies of latter spring that lay their eggs and sting and sing and weave their petty cells and die. In the final stanza, he asks his friend to be near him when he fades into death, to mark the place where mortal life has ended, and to show him the horizon of eternity before him. Be near me when I fade away to point the term of human strife, and on the low dark verge of life, the twilight of eternal day. That refrain, be near me, is such a simple cry from the heart. What he needs most to console him in his grief is to feel the presence of the one he grieves. Here once more are all those stanzas together. Be near me when my light is low, when the blood creeps, and the nerves prick and tingle, and the heart is sick, and all the wheels of being slow. Be near me when the sensuous frame is racked with pangs that conquer trust, and time a maniac scattering dust, and life a fury slinging flame. Be near me when my faith is dry, and men the flies of latter spring that lay their eggs and sting and sing and weave their petty cells and die. Be near me when I fade away to point the term of human strife, and on the low dark verge of life the twilight of eternal day.